Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of Dress Media. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, we are putting on our dress detective hats today again to do a little bit of time travel. We're going to jump all the way back to the ancient world before we jump forward in time. And then we're going to jump back again and forward again and bounce around a little bit until we get up into the very present day. (laughs) Yes, because today we are going to discuss Egyptomania, aka quote unquote, the Western world's long standing fascination with ancient Egyptian culture and aesthetics. So, from the time of Napoleon's invasion of Egypt in 1798, the discovery of King Tut's tomb in 1922, to museum exhibitions featuring the treasures found in Tut's tomb, which traveled the United States in the 1970s, ways of Egyptomania swept the world during the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And as we will learn today, the craze for all things Egyptian and other cultures actually predates the modern world, Cass. So today, Darnell Jamal Lisby, the Assistant Curator of Fashion at the Cleveland Museum of Art, joins us to discuss their current exhibition, Egyptomania, Fashion's Conflicted Obsession, which looks at how fashion design has looked to Egypt for inspiration over the centuries. Pairing ancient Egyptian objects with the museum's own collection of prints, photographs, and decorative art objects, And of course, fashion, which has been created by non-Egyptian makers, the show interrogates issues of cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation and details history's very long and very tangible obsession with ancient Egypt. We cannot wait to learn more. Darnell, thank you so much for joining us today. Darnell, welcome back to Dressed. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I learned several months ago that you were going to be doing this exhibition, I got very excited and I texted you to see if that you would join us again. And and later that day, actually, and I haven't told you this, Katsidi texted me and she's like, hey, did you know about this show? We have to get Darnell back on the podcast. And I was like, kids, already on it. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for being here. I- <laughs> No, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Yeah. And and so I think this is a fascinating topic. And it's one that I discuss as well with my students when I teach fashion history or costume history. And there are so mm-hmm. many different ways that we could enter this discussion today. But I'd like to start by quoting you, actually, because in the text of the exhibition, you write that fashion can be a conduit for illuminating the past and present histories. The obsession with ancient Egypt in fashion motivates fewer to be continuously curious about the diverse origins of our contemporary world. Um, And I think that that phrase, uh, diverse origins, is very interesting because it can also apply to the Egypt of antiquity, not just the contemporary world. So as a nation, in what way was ancient Egypt diverse? And, And conversely, what united its populace? Because we're really talking about more than 3,000 years of history here. Yeah, it's funny you say that. They pick up on that because, as you know, I speak in riddles a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I write 
<laughs> and I write in riddles. So some people catch it and some people don't. So I'm like, I, there's layers and layers and layers and layers of, of what I try to write, try to sum up. But certainly it's something that we tackle, that I tackle, particularly in this exhibition. And, and um, I also want to just preface, because I've been doing this quite a bit, like with lectures and whatnot about Egyptomanian programming, like, I just want to preface, I am not an Egyptologist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all of my research, I had to do good old-fashioned curatorial research and reach out to colleagues and really kind of come up with a theory that I, it, it, I feel that is authentic to the ancient Egyptian, uh, to ancient Egyptian history. And uh, ancient Egypt during this time period, and I uh, kind of actually take a few steps back, what I researched um, and what obviously contemporary Egyptologists assert is that the foundational society of the Egyptians were from northern Sudan, southern Egypt, and then they migrated into the Nile region. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then over time, you had the Libyans and uh, Nubians move in and out. And then you had Semitic-speaking people who moved in and out. Um, eventually, in their lat- latter part of their hist- of ancient Egyptian history, you had the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, mm-hmm. in and out. And, of course, the Babylonians and Assyrians uh, as well during the Middle Kingdom um, and New Kingdom. And so uh, Egypt physically, to our eye, was an extremely diverse place. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it was as diverse as the world that we're living in it. Um, Brooklyn Museum actually goes as far to assert, and I've seen this, I think also maybe at MFA Boston, but I'm not too sure, but they say that physically the ancient Egyptians would look like the kind of color range of skin cues of the African American, of African Americans. Mm-hmm. So like in the same kind of context, but to say the least, I don't know, I wasn't there, but <laughs> I would say her. that it was- <laughs> None of us are, so I'm not going to put my two cents in it, but I think that's a fascinating assertion that they make. But I will say that ancient Egypt, based on how many different cultures, like I, cultural identities that have kind of went through Egypt and really kind of became part of the ancient Egyptian landscape, it was extremely diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that united ancient Egypt that separated it as a society from others was its foundation in religion. Mm. And so that's something I wanted to kind of string through and bring in that humanity um, in the exhibition in ways that I I haven't really seen Mm -hmm. previously. Um, And obviously fashion being something so connected to our humanity and who we are individually, I thought it might be a great way to merge my desires on both ends through a medium that's obviously my expertise. Yeah, and fashion also being part of their religious iconography as well, which is quite interesting Mm -hmm. and something else that you do point out several times in the exhibition. You know, so we're talking about, you know, all this uh, cross-cultural migration in and out of the geography that was ancient Egypt, Mm -hmm. you know, and at that time, ancient Egypt was one of the superpowers of the ancient world. Mm -hmm. It was an epicenter of trade. And of course, this is going to breed even more cross-cultural pollination. So when do we see other cultures begin to develop a fascination with Egyptian aesthetics? Oh, from the beginning. Mm. I mean, ancient Egypt, by the time, you know, like you, we all know the usual suspects of Greek writers like Herodotus, Mm -hmm. you know, so on and so forth. Those who came much later on um, during the classical period of Greece, Mm -hmm. 
Egypt at that point was an ancient society. Yeah. So like it's it's this idea that you know they were uh, an extremely as to, as you point out a, 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 a ancient superpower, and so and they were at the really cusp of so many different uh, innovations in math and engineering mm-hmm. and science. Um, uh, even the idea of the blue dye, you know, that we, we see arise in ancient Egypt before we see it in many other cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say the perm, the permeation of, of the permeating of ancient Egyptian cross culture across the Mediterranean, we see as early, I, I will say in my own research, oh my goodness, Definitely well before the Bronze Age, because it was, you know, ancient Egypt was the the, the center of culture. So you see a kind of raise in in some Middle Eastern cultures uh, in the Mesopotamian, in what was what we now deem as Mesopotamia, um, and you see it a little bit uh, in Greece, uh, and then it kind of spread throughout North Africa and certainly also East Africa. And so you see it really early on pretty much during the Old Kingdom, what we consider Old Kingdom Egypt, of that kind of uh, cultural translation and transcendence across the Mediterranean of ancient Egyptian culture. Mm-hmm. So it, it happened very early on because Egypt wasn't, as you alluded, it wasn't a siloed nation. Mm-hmm. It was trading. It was part of conquest. It was trying to expand its empire and influence. So naturally, uh, I call it ancient Egyptomania. Was happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, we haven't really addressed this. So how would you like mm-hmm. to define this term, Egyptomania? Uh, so <laughs> this was the fun part <laughs> that I was definitely, uh, that we went to a few workshops to figure mm-hmm. out. Um, but uh, I, 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 I stay typically along the lines around the fascination of ancient Egyptian mm-hmm. culture um, seen primarily in Western art mm-hmm. and art architecture and, of course, any kind of uh, facets of Western culture, including, you know, Western fashion in that way. So, mm-hmm. yes, uh, that that's how I have framed Egypt domain. And, and for our for purposes, that really t- translates to the aesthetics of Egypt, right, as kind of translated and viewed through the Western lens on their end is really kind of what we're talking about. But uh, it wasn't Mm -hmm. just the Egyptian aesthetics that captivated the imagination of foreign traders and all of these other cultures outside of Egypt, also Egyptian cultural practices. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about Mummy Brown here for a second because some of our <laughs> listeners probably aren't going to know what this is or was yeah. um and it's a very interesting topic and you point out that the popularity of this or the demand for it was actually something that factored into the spread of egyptomania so what is mm-hmm. mummy brown During- <laughs> So it's, it's certainly, well, Mummy Brown was grounded mummy, and then it was made into primary, well, it was made for medicinal purposes as well, but then it was also made for uh, paint, um, for artwork. So if you go to your local art institution, you might see uh, usually uh, paintings in the Middle Ages and early modern period. Um 
that might be that might have incorporated mummy brown paint, um, but it's it's grounded mummies. Uh, uh, obviously, they would have to dig them up, ground, <laughs> and then turn into the pigment. But uh, you really see the rise of mummy brown during the Middle Ages. Um, and certainly it was this kind of connecting time of Egyptomania because Europe, the European countries and nations were obviously in a lot of conflict with a lot of the North African Islamic controlled nations mm-hmm. and also uh, Middle East Islamic controlled nations because of the Crusades and all of that kind of drama. So, but there was still trade happening. Mm-hmm. And so that one connection, that one kind of one one of the ways that there was a line and thread through of Egypt domania was through this this trade of mummy brown mm-hmm. of mummy brown. Yeah, mm-hmm. and what were they using it for for medicinal purposes? I, I as an art historian, because that is of course my background, I've I've known about it in terms of paint, but what were they using mm-hmm. it for for medicinal purposes? I'm not too sure. I, I hadn't gone down that rabbit hole ah. because we don't, I believe we have one, one or two works of art in the CMA. I was told that might, that might have mummy Brown, but uh, I have to verify that with the European art curators. But, um, but in terms of the medicinal practice, I have no clue. Mm. And obviously during that time, science was a little, Mm-hmm. It was a big old question mark yeah. during yeah. the Middle Ages, so I'm not too sure. Well, you know what? Um, you said rabbit hole, so you know exactly what I'm going to do because you and I know each other well. As soon as we get done with yeah. this, I'm going to go down that rabbit hole, and I'm going to put it in the <laughs> outro to this episode, what I find out, <laughs> if I can find out anything. Right. As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. 
be well sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. But uh, I think this topic of mummification leads us directly into one of the major themes that you explore in the exhibition, which is how so often the iconography that was or has been used as sources of inspiration by non-Egyptian makers of Egyptomania objects, that iconography is often sourced from funerary objects. And those funerary Mm -hmm. objects obviously have a spiritual and religious association to them, Mm -hmm. um, which is problematic. So could you talk a little bit about some of the ancient funerary objects in the show and also address some of the more contemporary objects which you have placed them in dialogue with? Sure. So, uh, well, it's interesting. So some of the, uh, the, even though this isn't contemporary, there's uh, some Cartier pieces that are from the 1930s, mm-hmm. 20s and 30s um, that I have in the show, particularly with the smaller kind of funerary objects, including a scarab. Well, two heart, one is a heart scarab, another is a, a regular uh, pectoral scarab. So they were used for different purposes, I believe. But I know with the heart scarab specifically, um, for instance, as like uh, leading into the broader reason of why I kind of wove this story into the show, but this heart scarab is, um, I forgot, uh, it might be Ptolemaic period, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it's it's in conversation with the Cartier vanity case from 1932. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a gold case. I, I'm not too sure what it was used for. I think it might've been used for the small little cigarettes, like the tiny ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, or it might have been obviously just a regular makeup vanity case. Um, and it has uh, two beautiful like sapphire cabochons on the top of them. And the motif that the cabochons are kind of embedded in is like the um, uh, the scale that you see in the Book of the Dead, depicting the Book of the Dead or any kind of funerary um, journeys of the afterlife when your heart was weighed during the final judgment, mm. uh, during your final judgment when you're in the afterlife. And obviously if your heart, which was the only body, which was the only organ left in the body during mummification, weighed and balanced with the feather of truth of Ma'at, uh, it's, uh, you were, you know, you went to their version of heaven, basically. But uh, if it was imbalanced and your heart was heavy and obviously it was saying that you were, you didn't have such a great life, you know, you would, your heart would be fed to the crocodile monster and you cease to exist. And so a heart scarab was, if you could obviously afford it, assume, presumably, you would have a heart scarab placed on the body or sent with you in your, you know, things, because the Egyptians believe the physical, these physical objects that we, you know, that are absolutely beautiful and they're glorious and we, we've analyzed them and they are part of museum collections across the world. And we look at them for their aesthetic beauty, but the Egyptians believe that they are physical objects that do go and transcend into the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And so the heart scarab, if you could afford it, would like help kind of trick 
the scale a little bit. Uh-huh. And so you can purchase your way into heaven, essentially. So I think that was like a fun little tidbit in a way of like, yeah, buying your way into heaven. Ah, not It's a very common theme across time, you know? Oh, yeah. And Indulgences so- <laughs> in Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so like we see it. Over and over again in so many different religious contexts. Um, So the ancient Egyptians were no different. Mm -hmm. And so for us, for me, what I wanted to really do is is really kind of string in that story about, even though, again, we see the physical and aesthetic beauty of ancient Egyptian objects, they they meant something Mm -hmm. to someone. And, you know, whether it's cutting off the nose of a, leader, a great leader, that was meant to say that that leader wouldn't be able to breathe in the afterlife. Mm. Like that was their thinking, you know, or seeing a false door in a tomb. That was, those were portals for the after, for those who are in the afterlife to come back to this life to get what I call a care package. You would leave a little offering of food and they would take it back with them. Mm. So like the the ancient version of a a college care package. So, you know, essentially it's, it's these things that we do today are no different than what they did. But I will say in terms of the fashion, when I had in conversation, you know, I think the, the, the nuance here is a lot of fashion designers, like for instance, you have the Chanel Metier, uh, the dress from the uh, by Karl Lagerfeld for the Chanel Metier 2018-19 collection, and um, you know it, it's stark white. It very much is a little more of a romantic, uh, a romanticized version of the Calisiris dress that you see uh, as a staple dress within ancient Egyptian history throughout its entire history uh, in women's wear. Um, and it's obviously very much romanticized. It's embellished with pearls and it has a little bit of like knitted, it has knitted straps. So it's it's not obviously a line for line copy, but it really kind of points out that a lot of designers are looking to these funerary examples because that's really how Egyptologists and how institutions tell the story of ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it really doesn't, for me, it doesn't start with fashion, it really starts with Egyptology. It starts with that work and them laying the groundwork and saying, here's the objects that you can look to to understand ancient Egypt and designers who are people just like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. That's how they analyze and that's how they interpret um, their inspiration. Mm -hmm. And so with that said, it's it's a it's a very tricky balance, Mm -hmm. certainly. um, But to say the least, um, I feel that why I chose the designers I chose was to show everyone else's perspective mm-hmm. um, and how they see ancient Egypt. Yeah. Well, and also too, I want to turn our attention back to Cartier for one second, because some, sure. some of the more breathtaking pieces in the exhibition relate to the designs of that firm. They did quite a bit of Egyptian inspired designs in the 1920s and the 1930s. Mm-hmm. I think it, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of our listeners will know that, Egyptomania exploded in the 1920s, really because of the discovery of the tomb of King Tut. So that was that was one reason. But I don't think this object that I want to talk about next is actually in the exhibition. I think it, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think it might just be on the website, but it is a sketch from the house of Cartier. Um, yeah. And it is uh-huh. it is a sketch for a set or a prior of jewelry. It's like a brooch or a necklace. There's an armband. Mm-hmm. There's bracelets. Mm-hmm. One of the bracelets mm-hmm. is attached to two rings that are worn on the fingers. And it's all supposed to be realized in platinum 
rubies, emeralds, and Mm -hmm. diamonds. And the thing about it that I find very interesting is it's very emblematic of this uniquely Cartier style that we would now kind of think of as being art deco-y. And they were kind of the progenitors Mm -hmm. of this look in in jewelry. Um, But here they're blending it with Egyptian references. So Mm -hmm. my question is, because it is something kind of a new style that they invented, cultural appropriation or Mm -hmm. aesthetic appreciation adaption, like, or maybe can those Mm -hmm. things all coexist in the work of Cartier? Because to me, it's not, it's not a direct copy. It's, it's something, it's a new aesthetic, which they have created. I agree. I agree with that. I, I, it's, and that's the tricky part about, you know, this conversation around appropriation, misappropriation and appreciation. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, and I welcome your listeners, you know, Susan Scaffoldi's, you know, uh, uh, book on, Appropriation in an American context and legal context is a is a book that I like to reference, as well as cultural appropriation in the arts. Um, and so, I feel like with the Cartier examples, particularly the one that you're talking about in the sketch, those are inspiration. Like it's like merging the kind of you know ostentatious Cartier mm-hmm. you know designs. That we're looking to mixing really a different different cultures actually mm-hmm. like Greek culture, Roman culture, as well as ancient Egyptian culture. Really looking at these like large uh, Mediterranean you know historical um, references and then infusing them together. But this one in particular, that I wish I, I wish there was like a real version of oh it because I would like it is. I, it's, it's, <laughs> I was literally salivating. <laughs> I was like, I wish this was real. Uh, it was real, but no one knows obviously where it is, yeah. um, who owns it. But uh, but to say the least, when it comes to that conversation, and this is what I kind of string throughout the entire show, you know, it, it kind of comes down to understanding who the ancient Egyptians were, mm-hmm. how, and then from there, who, how did they define the rules of using and interpreting their culture? Mm-hmm. And then who are the heirs to ancient Egyptian culture? Mm-hmm. And then from there, you're able, and once you're able to kind of understand those parameters, then you're able to kind of determine the air of appropriation or appreciation mm-hmm. depending on the situation. And I think for a lot of the Cartier pieces, I see appreciation, aesthetic appreciation in a way that kind of, I feel the ancient Egyptians would love mm-hmm. because you're really kind of setting their culture in this kind of overly glamorous light, mm-hmm. right? Like they're not denigrating it. They're emphasizing it and accentuating it. And I think all the Cartier pieces do just that. Yeah. It's almost like a, they're celebrating the exuberance of Egyptian design. Um yeah. yeah, so, so beautiful. So Cartier was far from the only design house jumping on the Egyptomania bandwagon in the 1920s. Uh, you have some really beautiful images of some 1920s beaded dresses that work with Egyptian motifs in the exhibition. Um, and Egyptian, you know, aesthetics have been this constant source of inspiration to fashion designers in decades subsequent. I think it's really interesting and uh, when I uh, talk about uh Uh, Egyptomania in class, 
I talk a little bit about an, another explosion of Egyptomania that happened in the 1970s, actually, mm-hmm. because it was the Treasures of Tutankhamun exhibition that was touring the U.S. in the 1970s. I actually saw it when I was very, very, very young. Um, so we see another resurgence of Egyptomania in the 1970s in terms of fashion design. And just a kind of like yeah. a fun side note about that that touring exhibition, um, it It has an interesting facet of international politics to it because when that exhibition came to the U.S., it was right on the heels of U.S. and Egypt reestablishing diplomatic relations. So it was kind of like this PR move on the part of Egypt. So I'm I'm getting off topic, but I'm just saying that (laughs) we see these continual resurgences of Egyptomania in fashion design decade after decade after decade, and they're usually in conjunction with some event that happens. So um, I'm hoping we can turn our attention back to some of the more contemporary pieces. You've already mentioned uh, the Karl Lagerfeld for the Art de Metier piece. So many Mm -hmm. fashion designers continue to be inspired by Egyptian art and also Egyptian fashion. So could you take us through some of the other contemporary pieces that are in the show? For sure. It's a very intimate show. Um, It's the first for the CMA. So it's a lot of trial and error, but I feel like we, we, we did, we, we, we pulled through and we, we created something that's genuinely ours here at the Cleveland Museum of Art. But um, there is the Givenchy downstairs in the Egyptian gallery. So we did an intervention, which is a part of our, um, this chapter of the CMA and and having interventions and bringing other forms of art to create more thematic uh, narratives to the permanent galleries. Mm-hmm. And so um, certainly our actually our ancient Egyptian gallery is extremely intimate in terms of the space itself. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, why not use this space too? So there's a Givenchy from the fall 2016 uh, collection by Ricardo Tichy, which has this beautiful kind of kaleidoscope uh, motifs that allude to ancient Egyptian fauna and flora. Uh, it's a dress and a top as well. And it has a Ujat eye brooch on the front. Um, and then back upstairs, uh, in conversation with the Chanel uh, dress, uh, you have two Balmain. Um, uh, one is an ensemble. The other is, one is a dress. Um, they're from the spring 2019 collection that Olivier did. So it was post uh, Bay kind of... Uh, costumes, which also for that performance, for Beyonce's performance that had that opening kind of ancient Egyptian inspired ensembles that she wore on the first and second day of her performances. So it was like, like all in the same time that he was probably designing for her, that she he was also designing this particular collection. Mm. So I'm curious. I don't know if there's any kind of correlation between the two, but, you know, it, I... I I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, well, you are then, a Beyonce fashion expert. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't already heard Darnell's first appearance on the show, uh, this is this is exactly what we talk about. We break down all the fashion in Black is King. <laughs> yes, and we see it in that in that and we see ancient Egyptian references in that one in, in Black is King too. That was all around the same time, so that's why I don't know if it, if I'm. If there's not any correlation Mm. between the two. And then I have two more dresses in the show from an Egyptian designer. Her name is Yasmin. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and she has a house called Maison Yeya, mm-hmm. uh, based in Dubai. And, uh, and so I wanted to have an Egyptian voice. She's one of two Egyptian voices in the show. Another one is, uh, the accessories, uh, London based accessories design house, um, uh, Sabrina Maruf. It's a duo. Um, and they're also Egyptian descent and, uh, they actually have this beautiful purse that you can, uh, that uses a silhouette of King Tut's funerary mask mm-hmm. and flips it upside down, mm. um, to create the silhouette. Oh, um, and it's like golden blue, um, golden, like gold and blue stripes, similar to the golden lapis lazuli. Um, but yeah, I, I the dresses, in the additional ensembles. And then we have some additional jewelry um, from the Chanel show as well. And so, yeah, I wanted to kind of capture as much as I could with what I had to make it work and show this kind of breadth of different designers really looking to ancient Egypt in this period. And then I also have, uh, I have images, but then I also have a video compilation of different fashion shows that I thought really amplified uh, this essence from the set of Rick Owen shows from like mm, like 2019 to or 2020 to 2022, like all his shows were inspired by ancient Egypt mm-hmm. because he just went on a trip to Egypt. Um, and then the big Zuhair Murad fall, is it fall or spring 2000? I'm no, I'm getting the, the, the dates wrong, but I think it's like 18 or 2020. Um, uh, ancient Egyptian inspired show, and um, and then of course the Galliano two thousand four Galliano for, for Dior two thousand four Couture show, and then his show back in ninety seven for his own eponymous brand. And so yeah, I wanted to kind of show a wide breadth of all these these designers that we obviously you know celebrate so much, but looking at how they see ancient Egypt and how they reverence the culture in their own way. Olivier takes a more kind of abstract approach, which is really kind of a testament to his own aesthetic. Whereas someone like, I would say probably Carl is a little more literal, Mm -hmm. probably on the scale of um, more theatrical to more, you know, abstract or looking at a more avant-garde kind of type of design. And so, you know, because I'm thinking about Olivier's, the white ensemble with the top and the skirt, um, it's this very white, very cinched top. It almost looks like a dress and it looks like distressed linen mm-hmm. in the same way that you would see deteriorated linen when you discover it from a, a tomb or anything like that. It's it's very much in disarray and, and degraded and I mean degraded. And so um, that's how you will find it. So he used that kind of imagery in the ensemble. Mm-hmm. So he's thinking about ancient Egypt in a more nuanced way. So it, it's, it's different approaches. And I, and I am glad that um, we were able to have these and thankful to all the houses for participating. Yes. So, you know, mm-hmm. given the title of the exhibition, my last question for you has to use this word conflicted. <laughs> um, how conflicted do you think contemporary fashion's relationship is with Egyptomania? And I want to just tease this out a little bit further because now there is more than a hundred years of history in terms of Egyptomania fashion designs. So, are the styles that we're seeing, the more contemporary styles that we're seeing on the runway, even Egyptian at this point at all? Or is this more of a self-referential history of fashion history itself? Is it extra meta, I guess is what I'm saying. 
I, it's funny. I would actually say it's like extra bad. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's an inspiration inspired by an inspiration inspired by inspiration. Exactly. I do. I feel, and that's the conflict, uh-huh. you know, that's part of the conflict. Um, because I do, you know, in the show, I go back a little bit and talk about really the, this conflict really coming to a, not a head, but one of its kind of major interesting points um, during the 1950s and 60s, -hmm. right? And then the 70s when you have a lot of questions. And it it was happening before then because you actually have people like W.E.B. Du Bois and a lot of Afrocentrists during the uh, turn of the century that were questioning Egyptological research Mm -hmm. and the really kind of overcorrect, well, not even overcorrectness, but the whitewashing of ancient Egypt and how that was disseminating in Egyptological research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so you then had this overcorrectness by Afrocentrists, or some would believe overcorrectness, others wouldn't. I'm not going to, again, jump into that one. Um, but they there's those who believe there's an overcorrectness of ancient Egypt by saying that they were, in our contemporary constructs of race, Black. Mm-hmm. And so... That's where we get into the weeds. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I actually had a conversation between Hank Willis Thomas's uh, denial work of art Mm -hmm. with a cover of Donnell of March of the March 1966 Vogue, British Vogue cover starring Donnell Luna. Mm -hmm. And this idea where you have these contrasts of, well, Here's what people thought of ancient Egypt by looking at seeing white women in these ancient Egyptian-esque styles in this advertisement versus this other kind of insertion of blackness in the story that most people at the time rejected mm-hmm. uh, or most scholars rejected. And so you're kind of like, well, where's the inspiration and where's the reality? Mm-hmm. And that's what fashion does is kind of muddle those waters of of reality a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tried to kind of dig out of. And it's just to say that, well, there's many of our societies that are actually built on ancient Egypt. So actually there's more of us who can kind of do our own interpretation based on how we, how we feel. Mm -hmm. And that's it. You know, there's more of us who are included and should be included in that conversation, whether you're black or whether you're white. But the reality is trying to place our contemporary constructs of race and understanding of them in our own time is kind of uh, counterproductive because I, if they were alive today, I don't think that they would they, they would be happy about being put in that conversation about race because mm-hmm. they didn't see themselves in that way mm-hmm. as any ancient culture. So it's, it, it's, it's a very nuanced conversation, but I will say most fashion designers, I think today are looking at inspirations of inspirations of inspirations and just building on, again, what I say in the show, this curiosity about ancient Egypt and continuing that curiosity. Yes. Well, We hope that this episode inspires all of our listeners' curiosity to head over to your website. You guys did a really cute website for the exhibition where there's additional information. As I mentioned about those Cartier sketches, those are not in the show, right? They're just on the website. Mm -hmm. So you can pop over there if you can't pop over to Cleveland to see the show. When does it close? 
It closes January 28th. Okay, great. So you have several months if you happen to be in Cleveland. Darnell, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for this very fun exhibition. I, I really enjoyed reading all of your exhibition texts and seeing all the objects. And I won't be able to get there myself uh, th- this fall, but, uh, but, it, but thank you. This was, this was great. Thank you so much. I appreciate this time. Thank you. Darnell, thank you so much for joining us once again on the podcast. And April, now I am super curious about that one particular Cartier sketch the two of you were discussing. So I'm going to need to pop over to the exhibition's website to check it out. And also, I bet it isn't just me who is dying to know, pun intended, what else (laughs) you found out about Mummy Brown. Ah, yes. Well, as I mentioned, I was familiar with Mummy Brown in terms of it being an ingredient in paint at certain points in art history, but its use for medicinal purposes is quite intriguing. And I will issue a word of warning here, maybe a little bit disturbing to us today. I was completely- Very much so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I was blown away by the fact that Mumia- or liquefied or dried and ground mummy remains were used to treat illnesses by the Europeans for 600 years. So that is from the 12th to the 18th centuries. And among many uses, it was used during the Middle Ages and early modern era as a painkiller, a blood thinner, a cough suppressant, an anti-inflammatory for menstrual relief, for treating wounds and for difficult labors, and also as an aphrodisiac. Uh, oh, I have so questions. wrong in so many ways. <laughs> and Cass, apparently this was not a limited phenomenon. Supposedly during the 16th century, King Francis I of France carried a mixture of ground mummy and rhubarb on his person at all times in case he became injured and needed it on the spot. So it's kind of like a widespread thing, so much so that um, Shakespeare even writes about it in some of his works. So there's so much more to say here about Mamiya. Um, I'm going to leave it to the experts if you would like to learn more about this and, well, other kind of disturbing medical treatments in history, you can check out uh, Louis Noble's book, Medical Cannibalism in Early English Modern Literature and Culture. Interesting note, dress listeners, may you consider the sources of iconography residing in your closet next time you get dressed. We have mentioned this in the last few episodes of the show, but if you'd like to listen to the podcast ad free, you can now do so in the show notes and also in the link tree in our Instagram, you'll find a link that allows you to subscribe for exclusive content ad free for $3 a month. So this is just the price of a cup of coffee. You'll hear no ads and you're also going to help us out with a little dependable income. Yes. And you can also support the show here if you so choose to with a monthly donation. Um, And as many of you know, we recently went independent, leaving the biggest podcast network in the entire world so that we can develop the brand and bring you new and different types of content. And so, you know, this transition into an entirely different realm of finding income streams to support ourselves or making the show is perhaps a little bit more difficult for us than some other podcasts. And I'm going to tell you why. And that is because we vet our advertisers pretty intensely in terms of ethics and the sustainability of their products and labor practices if they are fashion brands. We actually turn down so many offers from fashion brands, which do not meet our criteria in terms of what we stand for. 
Yeah. So if you guys love the show and would like to support us monthly to not only continue to turn away these advertisers, but also bring you new kinds of content more quickly, please consider supporting the show and April and I with a little monthly donation of your choosing. So merci beaucoup. And of course, remember, we always love hearing from you. And if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at our new email, which is hello at dressedissue.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images accompany each week's episode. Thank you for tuning in and more Dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.